This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. This week in the Oncogene Brief, we're talking about some of the most exciting and important study results in oncology this year. The study results will be presented here in Chicago at the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, also known as ASCO. The meeting started yesterday. Based on the latest information from the organizers, more than 32,000 oncology professionals from around the world will be attending. The theme of this meeting is delivering discoveries, expanding the reach of precision medicine. More than 2,500 abstracts were accepted for presentation here in Chicago, while an additional 3,350 abstracts were accepted for online publication. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Youngest in Brief. So, what makes this meeting so special? In short, the meeting is probably one of the largest specialized oncology meetings in the world, bringing together oncology professionals not only from the United States, but also globally. Founded in 1964, the American Society of Clinical Oncology is committed to making a world of difference in cancer care. As the world's leading organization of its kind, ASCO represents nearly 45,000 oncology professionals who care for people living with cancer. Through research, education, and promotion of the highest quality patient care, ASCO works to conquer cancer and create a world where cancer is prevented or cured and every survivor is healthy. So let's look at some of the exciting news which will be brought this weekend in Chicago. This year, during the ASCO meeting, researchers and scientists will present an abundance of study results. For example, we will learn about the outcomes of a randomized phase 3 trial comparing 6 versus 12 months of adjuvant therapy with trastuzumab also known as Herceptin, for patients with HER2-positive early breast cancer. Another study explores the use of mobile and sensor technology to monitor symptoms in patients with head and neck cancer receiving radiation therapy. And we'll hear the results from an analysis of lung cancer screening rates following the 2013 United States Preventive Services Task Force screening recommendations. Costs are always a key consideration, and one of the presentations will compare the time to receive results and total cost of next-generation sequencing versus sequential single-gene tumor testing for patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer. Another study will be comparing chemotherapy use, cost, and survival in patients with metastatic colorectal cancer in Washington State versus British Columbia in Canada. One of the interesting abstracts I noticed is that of a randomized trial investigating acupuncture and cognitive behavioral therapy for the treatment of insomnia in cancer survivors. Another study I thought was interesting assessed the possibility of using a blood test to detect early-stage lung cancer. Interestingly, in earlier episodes of the Oncosine Brief, we talked about things like liquid biopsies. And another subject we've addressed in earlier episodes is that of cancer health disparities. This weekend, we'll hear the latest results, the very late-breaking news from an analysis of overall survival for black and white men in the United States with metastatic prostate cancer treated with chemotherapy on clinical trials. Another prospective study compares metastatic prostate cancer response to hormone treatment in black versus white men in the U.S., also a late-breaking abstract. 
One of the presentations expected to generate a lot of interest is the, is the discussion of a randomized phase 3 clinical trial exploring chemotherapy and hormone therapy compared to hormone therapy alone for women with breast cancer who have an intermediate risk of recurrence based on a genomic test. Another interesting presentation, and I guess this one will also generate a lot of attention, includes the results of a randomized phase 3 clinical trial in which the researchers added a low-dose maintenance chemotherapy after standard treatment for children with high-risk rhabdomyosarcoma, a rare cancer of the muscle tissue. There really is an abundance of late-breaking and very exciting news here at the 2018 annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. One study discusses a randomized phase 3 trial examining the need for surgical removal of the kidney called nephrectomy in patients with metastatic kidney cancer. And one thought-provoking presentation discusses the results of a randomized phase 3 trial studying the immunotherapy pembrolizumab versus platinum-based chemotherapy for advanced non-small cell lung cancer that expresses lower lower levels of a protein called PD-L1. A bit of background on that, PD-1 and PD-L1 are types of proteins found on cells in the body. The PD-1 protein is found on immune cells called T-cells. These cells normally act as a type of off-switch that helps keep the T-cells from attacking other cells in the body. PD-1 attaches to PD-L1, a a protein found on some normal cells as well as cancer cells. And this interaction basically tells the T-cells to leave the other cells alone and not attack them. Some cancer cells have large amounts of PD-L1, which helps them to hide from an immune attack. Therapies that target either PD-1 or PD-L1 can stop them from attacking and help keep cancer cells from hiding. So let's dig a bit deeper and see what makes the 2018 annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology so fantastically interestingly. One of the most interesting aspects of the ASCO meeting is that it features all kinds of studies related to oncology and hematology. Health economics and cancer health disparities are among some of the issues we've often addressed in this program. And this year, the ASCO meeting features a number of studies covering health economics. One of the studies being showcased is a cost analysis of researchers at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle, Washington. In a study called Comparison of Systemic Therapy Use, Cost and Survival in Patients with Metastatic Colorectal Cancer in Western Washington and British Columbia, researchers from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center are presenting results from a comparison between single and multi-payer systems. The researchers and their co-workers at the British Columbia Cancer Agency compared chemotherapy use, cost and survival outcomes using cancer registry and claims data from colorectal cancer patients in British Columbia and Western Washington. These researchers were trying to answer an interesting question. How does treatment for metastatic colorectal cancer differ between a single-payer healthcare system like British Columbia in Canada and a multi-payer system like the one in Western Washington in the U.S.? Another interesting study was conducted by Joshua Roth and another team from the Hutchinson Institute for Cancer Outcomes Research. Roth and his team are reporting results discussing the potential cost-effectiveness of first-line immunotherapy plus chemotherapy for advanced non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer. This study is, in part, based on an accelerated approval in May 2017 by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration of Pembrolizumab, a drug known as Keytruda, which is used to treat, for example, inoperable or metastatic melanoma. 
Joshua Roth and his team of researchers studied the value of the combination therapy compared with a standalone chemotherapy to evaluate comparative effectiveness and cost effectiveness. Their preliminary results showed that the combination treatment is expected to increase survival. But, as they found out, this, this happens at an additional cost that is unlikely to be considered cost effective. Now let's take a short break. After the break, we're back with our interview of some of the most exciting study results presented this year at the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO, which is held this year in Chicago. I'm Sony Portillo, here with Peter Hoffland, and this is the Oncazine Brief. Each day, researchers make new discoveries that bring us closer to the moment when all cancer patients can become survivors. Some days they take small steps. Others, huge discoveries lead to giant leaps forward. This progress, both small steps and giant leaps, happens with the help of clinical trials. Clinical trials are a fundamental path to progress and the brightest torch researchers have to light their way towards better treatments. And if you've been diagnosed with cancer, they may be your brightest ray of hope. Clinical trials introduce new hope in addition to the current standard of care by allowing researchers to provide participants access to cutting-edge and potentially life-saving treatments. So if you're interested in exploring new treatment options while helping to light the path for other patients, clinical trials may be the best choice for you. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more about clinical trials. Together, we can stand up for all of us. And welcome back. This is the Oncazine Brief, and we're here with an overview of some of the most exciting study results presented this year at the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO, in Chicago. The meeting started yesterday and will end on Tuesday, June 5th. I'm Sonia Portillo, here with Peter Hoffland, and this is the Oncazine Brief. One question we often hear is this. How do the costs of a particular treatment in, for example, a clinical trial, compare to the real world after a drug is approved? Now, Scott Ramsey and colleagues, also from Fred Hutchinson, have asked this question when looking at the so-called evidence blocks, which include uh, an affordability ratings. These ratings are developed by the National Comprehensive Cancer Network of Certain Cancer Treatments. Now, how similar are these ratings compared to that of real-world costs? In other words, how does their academic assumption compare to what a treatment actually costs? To find the answer, Ramsey and his team look at non-small cell lung cancer. These so-called evidence blocks were developed by the National Comprehensive Cancer Network to summarize the value of oncology treatments based on five key measures. Efficacy, safety, quality and quantity of evidence, consistency of evidence, and affordability. The goal of these evidence blocks is to provide the healthcare provider and the patient information to make informed choices when selecting systemic therapies based upon measures related to treatment, supporting data, and cost. These measures may be used to understand the clinical and scientific rationale for specific recommendations and estimates the economic impact of the recommendations. These measures may also be used to educate providers and patients and to be a starting point for shared decision-making, considering the patient's own value system. With the wide range of evidence-based and potentially appropriate therapies, clinicians and patients must choose the one specific treatment that is most appropriate for the individual, taking into account what matters most to the patient. 
Looking, the la- looking at the last aspect meant to help patients and physicians, cost and affordability, Ramsey and colleagues compared, compared real-world cost and the affordability ratings for chemotherapy in advanced non-small cell lung cancer patients. In their study, the median cost per patient per month was $16,412, with mean cost per treatment ranging from $12,000 to $67,000 per month. Based on these results, Ramsey and his team determined that the affordability ratings do not provide reliable information regarding the total cost for approved treatment options for advanced non-small lung cancer. This year, during the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, there will be a series of additional presentations about cancer health disparities. The organization recently recommended modernizing critical uh, criteria related to comorbid conditions routinely used to exclude patients from clinical trials. Dr. Joe Unger, a member of the Fred Hutchinson's Public Health Science Division, focuses his research on healthcare delivery, disparities, and outcomes. Together with his team, he investigated comorbidities and how these comorbidities influence patients' decision-making about clinical trial participation. Unger looked at so-called eligibility criteria. Now, these eligibility criteria are necessary in clinical trials to define the patient population under study, isolate the potential effect of an investigational drug, and ensure that a trial is conducted safely. However, excessive or overly rigid criteria may impair the rate of trial accrual, that is the number of people that can actually participate, restrict patient access to investigational drugs, and limit the ability to generalize the results to a broader population of patients who will ultimately use the drug. In 2016, ASCO and an organization called Friends of Cancer Research began a joint project to develop and advance specific strategies to change the nature of these criteria. Working groups from both organizations included patients advocates, representatives from biopharmaceutical companies, investigators, and government regulators. The development, they developed a consensus recommendation for these eligibility criteria. The results of this research, their article, was published last year in the October issue of the Journal of Clinical Oncology. Now let's go back to Dr. Unger's study. Unger and his team of researchers found that patients with one or more comorbid conditions were 24% less likely to participate in a trial. The modernization of trial eligibility criteria could provide the opportunity for several thousand of additional patients to participate in cancer clinical trials each year. Unger and his co-workers investigated how baseline comorbid conditions influence clinical trial decision-making and trial participation. They also modeled how reducing major clinical trial comorbidity exclusion criteria might impact participation to provide a benchmark for evaluation of the ASCO recommendations. So, in their study, Unger and his team looked at data from a large national web-based survey of 5,499 cancer patients in the cancer treatment decision-making process. They collected so-called self-reported data on 18 comorbid conditions and used this data to examine how individual and combinations of comorbidities using the best subset method influence patterns of trial discussions, offers, and participation. They then simulated how trial participation rates would change if individuals and combina- if individual and combinations of comorbidity exclusion criteria were removed, including important demographic and socioeconomic variables. And these results were really quite interesting. 
66% of the patients had at least one, or in some cases more than one, baseline comorbidity. The most common comorbid condition was hypertension, seen in 35% of patients. Overall, hypertension, prior cancer, and hearing loss were most strongly and uniformly associated with outcomes. The researchers found that each increase in the number of these conditions was associated with a decreased risk of trial discussions, trial offers, and trial participation. The removal of all comorbidity restrictions would generate an 18% relative increase in trial participation, or if the overall participation rate is 5%, a 1% absolute increase in the number of participating patients. So Unger and his team concluded that the, presidents, that the presence of baseline comorbid conditions adversely impacts trial discussions, trial offers, and participation itself. And although the modernization of trial eligibility criteria will benefit many patients, this effort alone is unlikely to substantially increase trial participation rates overall. Switching gears a bit. Studies show that cancer patients from rural areas have worse cancer outcomes than their urban counterparts. But studies relying on cancer population data are unable to account for the difference in access to care. In contrast, clinical trial patients receive protocol-directed care by design. This means that large clinical trial databases are an ideal uh, tool for examining the impact of residency on outcome. So, to find out how the cancer care outcome in clinical trials differs between rural patients and their urban counterparts, Unger and his team compared the geographic distribution and survival outcomes from rural versus urban cancer patients who participated in clinical trials. They examined 36,995 patients from all 50 states enrolled in 44 Phase 3 or Phase 2 and 3 clinical trials from 1986 to 2012. These trials included 17 different types of cancer. Unger and his team examined overall survival, progression survival, progress, progression-free survival, and cancer-specific survival for patients who lived either in rural areas or in a large city to determine if the place where one is living is associated with the outcome of treatment. Now, the outcomes for this were quite interesting. Overall, 19% of patients were from rural locations, the same as the rate of rural individuals in the U.S. Rural patients were older, 31% of these patients were 65 years old, while this was 27% for urban patients. These patients were also less likely to be African-American. 5% for rural patients were African-American versus 12% for urban cancer patients. They were also similar with respect to difference between male and female patients and were well represented within major geographic regions. Clinical prognosis, prognostic factors were also very similar. Overall, the results show that no matter where one is living, if a, patient had, if, if a particular patient had the same kind of access to treatment through participation in a clinical trial, the outcomes were also similar. This finding, finding suggests that improving access to uniform treatment strategies for cancer patients may help resolve rural versus urban disparity in cancer outcomes. Now, let's take a short break. After a short break, we're back with our overview of some of the most exciting study results presented this year at the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO, which this year is held in Chicago. The meeting started yesterday and will end on Tuesday. I'm Peter Hovland, here with Sonja Portillo, and this is the Oncocene Brief.
and welcome back. This is the Yonkers in Brief, with an overview of some of the most exciting study results presented this year at the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO, in Chicago. The meeting started yesterday and will end on Tuesday. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Yonkers in Brief. One of the most discussed types of treatments last year involves immunotherapy. Researchers at Fred Hutchinson address why CAR-T immunotherapy has led to durable remissions in some blood cancer patients, how another immunotherapy approach, that of checkpoint inhibitors, is gaining traction in a rare skin cancer, and different ways in which immunotherapies could be used in sarcomas. CAR-T cell therapy has led to durable remission rates for many, but not all, patients with certain advanced, highly treatment-resistant cancers. Researchers working in the laboratory of Dr. Cameron Turtle, a CAR-T cell expert, will present factors associated with durable remissions with a CD19 CAR-T cell product currently in clinical trials. Dr. Turtle is a member of Fred Hutchinson Clinical Research Division in Immunology. He conducts research to develop, to develop therapies in which the immune system is redirected to kill cancer cells. One of the researchers in his lab, Jordan Gauche, will discuss disease-related and CAR-T cell-related factors that are linked to long sur- longer survival among 57 trial participants with lymphoma. The poster presentation he is presenting is called Factors Associated with Durable Remissions After CD19-Specific CAR-T Cell Therapy for Refractory-Relapsed B-Cell Non-Hodgkin's Lymphoma, and will be presented on Monday, June 4th. Another presentation discusses factors impacting disease-free survival in patients with B-cell acute lymphoblastic lymphoma treated with CD19 CAR T-cells. Dr. Kevin Hay will present data on how a blood biomarker, disease-related factors, and pre-CAR T-cell conditioning are linked to survival after complete remission in 56 leukemia patients. The presentation will be given later this afternoon. Now, a very different and difficult-to-treat cancer is Merkel cell carcinoma. Merkel cell carcinoma is a rare type of skin cancer which is most often developed in older people. The disease kills one in every three people. Treatment options have been few and ineffective, especially for advanced Merkel cell carcinoma. But two ongoing immunotherapy trials are considerably shifting the odds. Dr. Paul Nim, a leading expert on Merkel cell carcinoma, is presenting the updated results of two pivotal trials. The first trial, titled Durable Tumor Regression and Overall Survival in Patients with Advanced Merkel Cell Carcinoma Receiving Pembrolizumab as First-Line Therapy, includes early data from a clinical trial released in 2015. The data from this trial was the foundation which made the drug Pembrolizumab, also known as Keytruda, a a standard of care for advanced Merkel cell carcinoma, and further results continue to show immunotherapy's advantage over chemotherapy. Clinical trials of PD-1 axis-blocking agents in advanced Merkel cell carcinoma have demonstrated increased progression-free survival compared to historical data from patients receiving chemotherapy. At 18 months post-treatment, 68% of the trial participants are alive, more than double the historic survival rate with chemotherapy. Unfortunately, the available data on response durability and overall survival are limited. During this year's ASCO, the, research, the researchers report outcomes from the expanded Phase two cancer immunotherapy trial of pembrolizumab in a first-line setting. The second trial involves a drug called avolumab, a human anti-PDL monoclonal antibody. This novel drug became the first FDA-approved drug for Merkel cell carcinoma based on the early results of the trial released in 2017. 
the latest results continue to show the remarkable durability of this therapy. Over one-third of all participants with chemotherapy-resistant metastatic or advanced Merkel cell carcinoma are alive after two years. In comparison, historical data has shown that such patients have experienced a survival rate of only a few months with additional chemotherapy. The latest results of a clinical trial with the investigational drug will be presented in the Ari Crown Theatre here at um, this, uh, the Exhibition Centre on Monday during the oral abstract session talking about melanoma and skin cancers. Every year, educational sessions are part of the program of the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. And this year, there will be a lot of attention focusing on personalized medicine, also known as targeted therapies or precision medicine. I guess the terms personalized medicine as well as targeted therapies or precision medicine are amongst the most fashionable terms used over the last four to five years in the treatment of patients with cancer. This year, Seth Pollock will speak in an education session on the role of immunotherapies in sarcomas. Dr. Pollock, an expert on sarcomas, cancers of the bone and soft tissue, treats sarcoma patients and his research focuses on adapting immunotherapy approaches for the disease. He sees sarcoma patients at the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, a partnership between Fred Hutchinson, University of Washington, and Seattle's Children's Hospital. In addition, Dr. Pollock is developing new ways to enhance a sarcoma patient's immune response against their cancer and to improve patient outcomes. The Seattle Cancer Care Alliance is consistently one of the highest enrolling sites for national sarcoma clinical trials, including trials focused on patients with especially rare sarcoma subtypes. During the annual ASCO meeting, Dr. Pollock's presentations with the title, Is There a Role of Immunotherapy in Sarcoma?, is part of a series of educational talks under the heading, Novel Approaches in Bone and Soft Tissue Sarcomas, The Emerging Role of Precision Medicine. These presentations will be held on Sunday, June 3rd. And during the 2018 ASCO meeting, there will be more presentations discussing personalized medicine, targeted therapies, and precision medicine. Researchers from Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center will also evaluate cost issues related to new therapies and genetic testing technologies that have the potential to offer more precise care for patients. One of the reviews that will be presented on Monday is a clinician's review of the emergence of cancer biosimilars in the U.S. In an educational session, Dr. Gary Lyman will reference insights from his May 23rd paper in the New England Journal of Medicine on Rationale, Opportunities, and Reality of Biosimilar Medications. He will discuss how new biological therapeutics like trastuzumab, also known as Herceptin, and Fulgrastim, also known as Nupagen, have revolutionized the practice of clinical medicine, but they have also contributed to the rise in healthcare costs. As patents on these therapies expire, it should be possible to reduce costs and improve access by creating biosimilars of these agents. However, to be successful, this would require medical providers to relentlessly monitor efficacy data and address reimbursement and coverage issues. Now, with a lot of advances in cancer therapies and diagnostics, the, co the question of cost remains. For example, genetic testing may link patients with a specific targeted treatment. But which approach is better? Is it more cost-effective to do multi-gene panel sequencing, which includes testing of various mutations simultaneously, or single-marker genetic testing, which includes testing of one gene at a time? To find the answer, Dr. Lotte Steuten, an associate faculty member at the Hutchinson Institute for Cancer Outcome Research in the Public Health Sciences Division and an associate professor at the University of Washington School of Pharmacy 
and her co-workers looked at the available evidence. Together with her co-workers, Dr. Steuten, who originally specialized in health services research at the Faculty of Health Sciences at the Maastricht University in Maastricht, the Netherlands, examined the data of approximately 5,700 advanced lung cancer patients who had received either type of testing. Multigene sequencing identified an additional 8% of patients with mutations and enabled 2% more patients to receive targeted therapies. Steuten's team determined that although lifetime total costs were higher for those who had undergone multigene sequencing, expected life years also increased, making multigene sequencing moderately cost-effective. The results of the study will be presented in a poster presentation later this afternoon. Now, let's take another short break. After our break, we will be back with our overview of some of the most exciting studies presented this year at the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology here in Chicago. The meeting started yesterday and will end on Tuesday. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Oncogen Brief. And welcome back. This is the Oncogene Brief with an overview of some of the most exciting studies presented here this year at the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO. The meeting started yesterday and will end on Tuesday, June the 5th. Let's talk about some of the clinical results in the development of a novel investigational drug for the treatment of gliomas. Gliomas, in particular the most frequent and malignant form of high-grade glioma called glioblastoma, have had a profound effect on every American's life, even if they did not have the disease. Ted Kennedy and former Vice President Joe Biden's son, Beau Biden, both died from glioblastomas. And last year, Senator John McCain announced that he too had been diagnosed with glioblastoma. Gliomas are considered the most common form of primary brain tumors, with an annual incidence of six cases per 100,000. The majority of gliomas are malignant tumors. Despite multimodal treatment for, with surgery, radio, radiotherapy, and chemotherapy, patients with glioma cannot be cured. Overall, patients with low-grade glioma typically live longer than those with high-grade gliomas. The median survival of patients with low-grade low gliomas range from 6 to more than 15 years, especially when there's a favorable genetic profile. In contrast, the median survival for patients with glioblastoma, the most frequent and malignant form of high-grade gliomas, is only 15 months. So as a result, palliation and the maintenance or improvement of the patient's quality of life are therefore considered very important. That's why health-related quality of life has become an important outcome measure in clinical trials next to traditional outcome measures such as overall and progression-free survivals and radiological response to treatment. But there is some hope for patients with glioblastoma. Two abstracts to be presented at the 2018 ASCO will highlight clinical success of a drug called ONC201, which is a novel investigational drug being developed by Oncoceutics for the treatment of patients with high-grade gliomas, including patients with gliomas that harbor the H3K27M mutation. 
The first abstract, entitled Integrated Clinical Experience with ONC-201 in H3K27M glioma, describes preliminary clinical data indicating ONC-201 induces durable radiographic regressions and clinical benefit in patients with high-grade gliomas that harbor the H3K27M mutation. This mutation is prevalent among certain types of brain tumors that develop in children and young adults and is known to confer one of the most dismal and uniformly lethal prognosis in patients with high-grade gliomas. There is no proven medical therapy for these patients. The integrated cohort of H3K27M mutant glioma patients who have received ONC201 that will be reported at the meeting include children and adults with different tumor locations. The durability of regressions and clinical benefit will be reported, which is an important measure of efficacy in this disease that is consistent with the immunostimulatory activity of ONC201, which was recently reported in the Journal of Clinical Investigation. ONC-201 is currently being evaluated in pediatric and adult H3K27M mutant gliomas in three ongoing clinical trials at several institutions around the U.S. This second abstract looks at the activity of ONC-201 in adult recurrent glioblastoma patients and describes the concentrations, targeted signaling pathways, and apoptosis associated with the investigational drug. Looking at some of the novel investigational drugs in clinical trials, Takeda Pharmaceutical Company is expected to present data, real-world findings, and trial updates from a number of studies. Among the expected presentations are the updated results from the Phase II ALTA trial in lung cancer trial of AP26113, examining long-term efficacy and safety of brigotinib in a chrysantinib refractory anaplastic lymphoma kinase-positive non-small cell lung cancer population. During poster discussion presentations, TAK788, a small molecule tyrosine kinase inhibitor targeting the epidermal growth factor receptor and human epidermal growth factor receptor 2 mutations, including exon 20 insertions, will report on the safety, pharmacokinetics, and preliminary anti-tumor activity of this molecule in non-small cell lung cancer patients. Takeda will also present a Trials in Progress poster on the ongoing randomization uh, of a, a trial called, um, or basically a phase three trial called PANTHER, discussing a first line treatment for patients with various forms of leukemia. Genentech, a member of the Roche Group, announced that, that the company will present new data from early and late stage clinical studies on more than 19 approved and investigational cancer medicines. New progression free survival results from the phase three Empower 131 study, one of which is one of the company's investigational drugs, as an initial first line treatment for people with advanced squamous non-small cell lung cancer will also be presented. These data build on the preliminary preliminary results from the ALEX study, which was first presented at ASCO 2017, which demonstrated a significant reduction in the risk of disease progression or death. Additional cancer immunotherapy data will be presented from the Phase 3 Emotion 151 study in advanced renal cell carcinoma and the Phase 1b data in first-line hepatocellular carcinoma. New tumor mutational burden data from two studies will also be presented, including blood-based tumor mutational burden data from the Phase 2 B-first study in advanced non-small cell lung cancer and tissue-based tumor mutational burden data across multiple tumor types, including non-small cell lung cancer, metastatic urothelial carcinoma, and melanoma. Data from pivotal studies in hematology will also be presented at ASCO. Additional analysis on minimal residual disease rates will be shared from the Phase 3 Murano study in people with relapsed or refractory chronic lymphocytic leukemia. 
Data from the randomized phase 2 study evaluating the antibody drug conjugate polituzumab vedotin in combination with bendamustine chemotherapy and rituximab or rituxan in people with relapsed and refractory diffuse B-large cell lymphoma and follicular lymphoma will also be presented at the Congress. Finally, the company is expected to bring updates from the two investigational medicines in breast cancer. This data includes results from the Phase 3 Sandpiper study in locally advanced or metastatic breast cancer and updated overall survival data from the LOTUS trial in previously untreated, locally advanced or metastatic triple negative breast cancer. Finally, the numbers of the studies are remarkable. And AstraZeneca and Madanyun, for example, are presenting 91 abstracts and studies in the treatment, um, dealing with the treatment of prostate cancer and hematological cancers. It's a pity that we don't have more time to go over the exciting news at the ASCO 2018, but we're at the end of our review. For more information about the American Society for Clinical Oncology, please visit the organization's website at ASCO.org. For us here at the Oncozine Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners and underwriters, for your ongoing support. Thanks to your support, our program now has a wider reach with distribution via iHeartRadio, in addition to PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and UK Health Radio. You can also download our program via iTunes and Google+. Our program can also be heard every Saturday between 1 and 2 p.m. in Arizona on KFNX, one of the top 10 radio stations in Arizona, reaching almost 5 million people throughout the state. For more information about that and how to support this program, check out our online journal at oncazine.com. To support this program, you can also visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash brief. We know that based on this overview, you may have questions, so please submit your questions to our editorial team via email, Facebook, or Twitter. And we'll post as many answers as we can on our website, oncozine.com. That is O-N-C-O-Z-I-N-E dot com. If you're living in the United States and want to receive our weekly Oncozine newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866. Thank you all, and thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Oncozine Brief. The Oncozine Brief is produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hofflin, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by InPress Media Group. Support for the Oncozine Brief comes from listeners of this station and our commercial underwriters and advertisers. For more information about underwriting and sponsoring options, contact Sean Mayer in California at 949 923 1660 or visit our website at oncozine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it. The Oncocene Brief is in part made possible by generous support from Kite Rocket. Kite Rocket, making brands more valuable. For more information about public relation beyond classic PR support, contact Martin Pirick at Kite Rocket in Phoenix at 602 602- Four four three zero zero three zero, or visit their website at kiterocket.com.